Welcome to, I don't even know what episode by this is, but it feels so long since we've been back. Um, welcome to uh, Wheeling and Dealing. Uh, we are uh, happy to be back, happy to be present, uh, happy to be here. Uh, it's now 2020. Uh, the last time we recorded was in 2019. Uh, and, um, you know, I think we were in the midst of a pretty contentious if I remember, pretty contentious primary, mm-hmm. um, which has significantly dwindled since the last we recorded. Um, uh, yes. Since we last recorded, there were probably 20 some odd people in the Democratic primary. Um, the world was not ravaged by a global pandemic. Um, the United States was still run by a bumbling uh, buffoon. Um, and uh, so that didn't change. But uh, <laughs> exactly. uh, there were there were there were some other significant changes, and you know we're happy to be back, happy to be uh, present for y'all, happy to be recording again. Um, and yeah, I'd be remiss if I didn't start off by saying, you know, Melissa, it, it it's great to uh, see you and hear you. Um, and uh, yeah, um, ha- how are things going for you in 2020? I know we're going to talk about life updates later on in the show, but um, I think with what you described had really personified simpler times. <laughs> Maybe times we did not appreciate um, in a way right. before everything got ravaged. Right. Um, so yeah, it's very good to hear and see you, Neil, and finally got to meet you earlier this year before yeah. everything <laughs> um, for travel has become seized. Um, yeah, 2020 is whew, um, the ghetto. I really feel like that's maybe a good way to describe it so far with this, um, the political arena and the, the absurdness in some ways of that and um, the pandemic uh, that we are seeing unfolding and the uncertainties and the fears around that. Um, yeah, 2020 is not starting off in the way that we thought it would, but we're still here. And that's what we have to, it's a way to hold on to. Um, each day, um, particularly now, but I'm I'm doing okay. I'm staying afloat. I'm doing my self care, and just really you know, just taking a deep breath every day. I think that's really all we can do. Um, you know, obviously with the uh, uh, the election, the way that it has kind of I don't want to say spiraled out of control because I think that's uh, does the uh, democratic process a disservice, but I think there were some significant uh, uh, changes to the democratic, well, adjustments, I guess, would probably be the better term, um, Mm -hmm. made to the democratic process uh, and to the the democratic primary, specifically. Uh, We saw uh, Democrats go out of their way to uh, kind of splinter in several different directions during the course Mm -hmm. of the primary. that, you know, uh, at one point there were four women running for president. Um, now there are none. Right. Uh, at one point there were three black people running for president. Now there are none. Now there are none. <laughs> there, were, there, there were, there were, there were two Latino, one white passing and one that actually was Latino running for president. Now there are none. Uh, there was one AAPI person running for president. There are none. Uh, so you can kind of notice the trend. We've gone from a significant amount of uh, diversity 
that is that that you know truly represents uh, the the uh, direction that the Democratic Party was trying to go in, and then we saw that dwindle back to old white men, literally. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and during the course of the Democratic Party primary process, uh, we've seen um, it, we saw the uh, you know I think a major I think one one of the most interesting dynamics that interesting and also unfortunate dynamics uh, in terms of a candidate that entered the primary was when Michael Bloomberg entered and subsequently eliminated a majority of the minority candidates that were running for president. We saw the elimination of Andrew Yang. We saw the elimination of Julian, Julian Castro. We saw the elimination of Cory Booker and we saw the elimination of Kamala Harris. Not, and, and it was, and it, and it wasn't that they had to self-assess and, and, and eliminate themselves. What ended up happening is they could fundraise against a billionaire who was literally not doing any kind of groundwork in any primary states. The only thing he was focused on, as he would, as he said it, was to defeat Donald Trump. And then we immediately saw uh, an astroturfing effort that I've never seen before. $500 million spent on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, uh, and on uh, television combined. Uh, targeted ads um, across the country during all kinds of events. Um trying to obviously center Michael Bloomberg as the best option as a Democratic Party nominee, but also um, to uh, basically paint him as this patron saint. Um, mm-hmm. And for those who are familiar with Michael Bloomberg, not just in New York party politics, but also before and after that, you would know that that's not totally accurate. Part of the problem with Bloomberg entering the race when he did was uh, candidates like Elizabeth Warren and Julian Castro and Kamala Harris and Eaton and Cory Booker to a certain extent were all surging in different in different degrees. They were all trying to get to that next level. Um, but then you also had Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, you also had Joe Biden uh, in the race as well, and um, and uh, Mayor Pete as well. Um, and so so while, so while we had a a, a, a wealth of diverse minority candidates. We also had a ton of mediocre white men. <laughs> Which is the standard, actually. And let's not yeah. talk about the other billionaire who was in the race, Tom Steyer, who actually had boots on the ground. I know here in South Carolina, he, um, from what I was told, he had almost over 80, close to 90 uh, different, like, um, staff here, you know, in across the state. You mm-hmm. know, just really hit the ground running, really trying to um, just make himself known. I know every week I was getting mail <laughs> right up leading up to the South Carolina primary. So it's very interesting to see how two billionaires utilize their money and influence to make themselves look like the ideal candidate. We have one who has some very selfish intentions, such as Mike Bloomberg, you know, as well as Tom, who's, you know, I'm still not questioning, but still wondering about his, um, his purpose, I know that some people have certain ideas about him, you know, say that he's really was the real deal. He really cares about the things he talked about. Mm-hmm. Um, so just really assessing, you know, can a billionaire be good? You know, can a billionaire actually um, be a good president? Right. Uh, and to really understand the issues when, you know, the money that they have is something that majority of people would never see in their lifetime or even their generations after them. So, you know, it was just very interesting to see the different dichotomy of just those two uh, figures alone and what seemed important. You know, Mike, um, excuse me, not Mike, but um, um, Steyer, he really put a lot of money into, I can speak for South Carolina, 
um, put a lot of money to this state. And, you know, for some people, it felt genuine. For other people, you know, they had some questions. So it was interesting to see the tale of two billionaires to a degree. Right. And really what ended up happening is because they entered the race and, you know, you saw this living in an early primary state in South Carolina specifically, that um, all it pretty much took was them to enter for, as I mentioned earlier, for uh, candidates, uh, you know, particularly uh, minority candidates to basically feel the brunt of a white bill, a white male billionaire uh, kind of using his money to push them literally out of the primary process right to the point where uh in one of those debates it it literally put tom steyer's billions and also michael bloomberg's billions forced the dnc well the, I, I shouldn't say forced the dnc because the dnc could have uh, could have chosen to not adjust their um debate stage uh rules to allow for billionaires to be on the stage. However, they right. did change them. And we saw the appearance of Michael Bloomberg and uh, Tom Steyer. They really brought nothing to the debate stage. And, yeah. and, and that first debate was very memorable because that was one of Michael Bloomberg's worst debate performances ever. Um, yes. He, you know, despite the fact, so, so, you know, yes, he's a billionaire, but that does not mean that money is going to buy you um, the right consultants to help help you help you with your speeches, the right uh, team to do debate prep. Um, mm -hmm. Certainly, he wasn't like I said; he wasn't putting feet on the ground in early primary states. Um, no. Didn't have any field offices or anything like that. And in the states that he did, um, when he ended up exiting the race, because uh, after Super Tuesday, um, he uh, only won one state of America and Samoa. And uh, I think two or three pledged delegates from that primary state. Mm -hmm. And as a result uh, of af after dropping out, he, he made a pledge to his staffers, many of whom I knew. Um, and I knew his senior, I knew some of his senior advisors as well that decided he, he made a conscious decision on that stage during his concession speech that he would, uh, or not concession speech, but his, you know, leaving the race um, right. that, uh, he would not, um, that he would not, uh, or, or that he would rather pay his staffers and his advisors until November of this year, 2020. And, uh, there was an article that was, uh, came out, I think in the New York times, I think about a, a few days ago of this recording, right. uh, that basically, uh, that he reneged on that. He basically said he was going to reinvest the money that he was going to pay all those staffers to, go behind the quote unquote presumptive nominee. And this is not a show where we are making a presumptive nominee call because that has not been determined yet. However, right. however, Bloomberg has decided to put his money behind who he calls the presumptive nominee in Joe Biden. And um, while that's his decision certainly to make, he does, he, he did renege on all those staffers that were making, some were making four figures, some were making five. Um, and to basically renege on a check is pretty serious. Um, but yeah. for those of us who know how billionaires move, <laughs> <laughs> not surprising um, at all. Exactly. <laughs> no, it's like this man has, and his reasoning is so asinine because this man has spent basically half a billion dollars, billion with a B, running for president, failed miserably, and act is and is acting as if 
paying his staff through the rest of the year is going to be such a financial burden or such a financial distraction to right. what he is aiming to do, which is and trifling. He, but when you work for the devil, cannot be too surprised when the devil shows you who he is. Um, yeah. I hope that, particularly given the times with the pandemic going on, that those on his staff can bounce back and find employment and take care of themselves. But I think it's a very big lesson as to why we have a distrust of billionaires or very high profile millionaires to begin with. Because, you know, in the switch of a you know second, he has basically impacted so many people's lives when right. he would never understand what that feels to not get that check or keep a steady income for a certain period of time. He would never understand the hardship or the stress of that. That would never be his plight. And for him to be so callous is upsetting to learn about, but it's not surprising at all, given this man's own history in, in a running New York and just the way that he has swooped into the campaign and his presence in that. But no one should be surprised that he would renege on something because he has a history of being selfish, <laughs> you know, being his own agenda. And this is just a, another, you know, example of him impacting people's lives and not thinking of the consequences of that. And I think for someone who, and I mean, we could kind of transition right into what's the, you know, how, you know, the, the, the landscape as it were now, because right. now we have somewhat of a, of a, it's not a title fight as much as people like to call it that. Um, it's really the battle of uh, two would have and should have been, right. in my opinion, running, 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 running against each other. Uh, for president right now, you know, on the Democratic side, we have Senator uh, Senator Sanders from uh, Vermont, and then we have a uh, former Vice President and Senator Joe Biden uh, from Delaware. Mm -hmm. And uh, you know, I, I can remember back in the summer of last year uh, when. Joe Biden was mulling a run for president and all of the then candidates who had already announced at that point, um, particularly in the progressive wing of the party. So we're talking about like Elizabeth Warren. We're talking about Beto O'Rourke. We're talking about um, Bernie Sanders, obviously, um, had were, you know, Senator Sanders was coming off of a uh, off of a 2016 organizing structure where he had the momentum at his back um, and uh a significant chunk of that was being taken away by Elizabeth Warren's uh, kind of surge in popularity, uh, right. not just for president, but also in general. Uh, mm -hmm. And um, and then kind of Joe Biden just kind of entered the race. And uh, to be an additional white moderate, ma white male moderate foil to the progressive policies that uh, or the progressive candidates that were already announced at that point uh, did those candidates a significant detriment. Um, right. It wasn't until Joe Biden entered the race that the that the quote unquote electability, which is a bullshit uh, uh, terminology anyway, the quote unquote right. electability of Elizabeth Warren and, and Kamala Harris um, and even Mayor Pete to a certain extent were called into question uh, because of their and, and obviously Cory Booker and Julian Castro as well because of their identity. Right. right. Um, and it's really gross that. Um, that had to play a role in a lot of folks' decisions. Um, a lot of 
I can remember at least online, and this is just an issue that I've seen consistently, right? At, mm-hmm. As primary states kind of came and went, I'm sure you saw it too, Vilesa, there were a number of uh, online voices that were upset about the particular results going a particular way. And my response almost immediately from a lot of those people was, you're doing a lot of pontificating online, but what kind of organizing by the candidate you support is being done offline and vice versa, right? Mm -hmm. If you're doing a significant amount of work offline, that's not being transitioned to online. You're doing your campaign and your movement a disservice. And that's, and, and, and this is to every campaign, not just a particular campaign, not just, and not, and not even the two that are left. Right. Right. Um, because they all kind of suffered that. Um, they all were acting like as long as they did the bare minimum, either online or offline, that would help them be successful. And it's why states like Iowa were such a kerfuffle, um, in terms of that primary. Um, it's why, uh, states like South Carolina were decided relatively quickly because I can remember, as I'm sure you were, there was a poll that was released by the Harris campaign. I'm sorry, it wasn't the Harris campaign. It was the Buttigieg campaign. They released a poll that said um, that there was a percentage of black voters that are still homophobic or something mm-hmm. to that effect. Right. And that, and that pollster um, uh, was called out for the lack of respondents that were actually in that poll because it was under a thousand. So how can a poll that was under a thousand and you can say a number of like, you you can't say a percentage of black South Carolinians and then have such a small respondent pool. So there were so many missteps by so many different presidential campaigns on so many different fronts. Um, And I know you, you know, and I know uh, for you uh, as someone who was a, uh, a uh, ardent Elizabeth Warren supporter, supporter, um, not just in South Carolina, but uh, during the course of the primary season. Um, I know that you uh, kind of were dismayed when she uh, decided to leave uh, without making any kind of real dent uh, in the in, in any primary states, at, at least in the ones that she was uh, running in uh, up until the point that she decided to drop out of the race. And um, the same could be said for every campaign that the, that decided to drop out. Um, there, there, there has been a considerable effort to, uh, um, by some campaigns to kind of drop out and go and support the quote unquote presumptive nominee, Joe Biden. Right. Right. And then right before, uh, I think super Tuesday, uh, Sanders campaign supporters, predominantly online. It wasn't surrogates, and it sure and it sure as hell wasn't staff. Right. It was most supporters online were saying, "Well, now that Elizabeth Warren has dropped out before Super Tuesday, she should endorse um, mm-hmm. uh, Senator Sanders." And it was like, "Do you understand that even if she had endorsed him at that point, even if Tulsi had endorsed him in addition to that at that point, it would not have changed the result." for any of the states that Joe Biden ended up winning across the country. And these are states that Joe Biden didn't even have a significant foothold in, in terms of a campaign structure in those states. Right. Um, And we are, and we are, and we are talking about states that are underserved, that need a significant amount of help that are run by Republican legislators and Republican governors. Um, and even in some cases, Democratic governors and Democratic legislators, but they are right. still undervalued and undersupported. Uh, and it's a significant task <laughs> for someone, uh, you know, for you know, for for Vilissa and myself to be involved in Democratic uh, politics as we are, um, 
and in different capacities, obviously, but still involved to see uh, this kind of shift and kind of this, uh, you know, anger. And Valis, I'd love for you to speak to specifically after mm-hmm. South Carolina. I, I, oh, I know definitely. you saw away specifically after folks were like, well, why didn't black folks support uh, Bernie in the wide numbers that they did, right? right. Um, why didn't they turn out? Why didn't percent, you know, um, and, that, and, and now we're seeing those same folks wonder the same thing for other states as they were, you know, as they come out. Obviously, we're in the middle of a pandemic, and obviously, we're going to talk about that as well. And that's obviously adversely affecting um, electoral politics and policy and, and public policy, too. But, uh, you know, Melissa, I'd love for you to speak to some of the, uh, you know, the, your, you know, your reactions <laughs> post South Carolina. I know it was some time ago, but I know you've been holding, uh, oh, yeah. you know, since, since we decided to come back. So, yes. Um, I had shared with you, Neil, a recent New York Times article. Uh, and then our show notes, I said, when things fall apart, <laughs> the Sanders campaign. And the headline reads, um, what the little snippet says, the Sanders campaign appeared on the brink of a commanding lead in the Democratic race. But a series of fateful decisions and eternal divisions have left him all what, uh, um, Vanquish, uh, um, uh, and I wanted to read that because the fallout of South Carolina was something to see. Now, of course, you mentioned I had my candidate of choice that I voted for in my primary. Um, oh, I'm sorry. Um, and which was Elizabeth Warren. And though I was vehemently supportive from working um, as a consultant with her campaign mm-hmm. on the disability plan to doing some incredible uh, on the ground work with Black Women 4 um, during the month of February when we had the primary. You know, I was realistic about my state and what we do, and particularly on the, the Black vote, particularly since we had Joe Biden in the race. Um, there have been a lot of articles about leading up to, not just for South Carolina, but just South Carolina primary, but in general. Um, Black voters' relationship with candidates that they are familiar with and that they have this um, air of trust with. Right. And Black folks know Joe. Black folks know Joe because he was the vice president for eight years with the first Black president. And for the average Black person, that was good enough for them to legitimize him uh, in their eyes, to trust him, since he was basically the second in charge to President Barack Obama, and whether they are familiar with his ideals as closely as we are uh, in our capacities, uh, he was their guy, and he would be their guy. So it really struck me how anybody was surprised <laughs> at the way South Carolina voted, <laughs> given that right. given that history alone. But right. what outraged me was the level of disrespect given to Black South Carolinians because of how a majority of us voted. And that level of disrespect wasn't just upset that a particular candidate uh, wasn't chosen. It veered heavily into the areas of racism, uh, in stereotyping Southerners, in failing to understand 
that you need to do work to get black voters, that no candidate has the right to anybody's vote, and that includes black voters, that when you don't do the work to engage with our community, we don't know you, as the Mariah Carey uh, meme goes. <laughs> and I brought up the Sanders campaign because a lot of his supporters were leading the charge in some of the vile things that were said about black Southerners. Despite having black Southerners on their campaign and having a black Southerner, Southerner now as their national outreach person for black outreach. So let's just. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Let's, let's get the facts here. And I um, mentioned that um, the New York Times piece because it pretty much laid out the failures of the campaign, particularly when it comes to black voters. And I'm just going to say it. Because it needs to be said, Bernie Sanders has an issue with engaging with people of color, particularly black folks. He had this problem in 2016. He has he continues to have this problem in 2020. Um, well, from- he had a problem as a you know when he was a uh, a you know in state office in Vermont, yep. uh, and now and then and then as a rising senator in Vermont as well. Um, there, yes. there, there, there are a number of stories about uh, his disconnect with black Vermonters. Um, yeah. So it's yeah. not just, uh, you know, it's not just about 2016. It's not just about this year of 2020. Um, there, there is a history, right? right. Um, and as someone who is a student of history, as we both are, mm-hmm. um, we, we, you know, it's one thing to browbeat black voters of any age right. about your civil rights history, right? As Bernie Sanders did in 2016, he then regurgitated in 2020. It's another thing, as highlighted in the New York Times article, to have people who sound Southern, um, that, are, that are also Black, that mm-hmm. sound like Southern Blacks in Southern states. Just because you have a Southern accent doesn't mean that you should be in a Southern state in any capacity as a surrogate, as a staff person, or have any kind of decision-making um, powers um, at all. Right. Um, you shouldn't be the sister of the candidate and be an advisor of the campaign. Um, so there, <laughs> uh, and that's a different campaign, not the Sanders campaign. But right. um, but I think for me, for the Sanders campaign, the stubbornness and the incompetence of not engaging black voters and yet demanding our vote is absurd. Um, I think that for me is seeing the engagement of the Sanders campaign. And by campaign, I'm not talking about his direct stuff. I'm talking about the trolls and the fools that's on Twitter and on social media. It's really disheartening that a candidate like him is not held accountable for his own missteps. That is repeated. That is, like you were saying, historically proven, regardless of what position of office he's been in. And in the New York Times article, there were pushes the missions of them talking about the engagement with black voters and the failure of that. And it makes me wonder where the stubbornness comes from. Why wasn't he pushed further in his particular engagement? Because I feel that if we look at some of the candidates, some of the candidates had, you know, just as hard of a time with engaging with black voters um, or people of color in general, as that particular campaign. However, internally, there were discussions about it. Now, what happened externally is a different factor, but there was some efforts made. But with Sanders, now twice running, the fact that this problem, and it is a problem because you cannot get become 
the nominee without black voters. This is a problem that he does not deem fixable or worth fixing, worth addressing, worth building right. community with, worth actually right. building a relationship with black voters, particularly in the states in which you need, such as South Carolina, such as those in Super Tuesday, that would determine or at least uh, begin to determine your fate you know, in this race. The fact that none of that was heavily considered and then exercised and put into practice is disturbing because I don't want a president that does not think that black people are worthy of engaging outside of the voting process. That's not the type of president that I want. I don't care who it is, whether it's Sanders or someone else. And I think it's time to hold him accountable on that and to call it for what it is. Sanders right. has a problem with black people. Sanders fails to engage black voters. This is a Sanders problem. This is not black voters problem. And now, I I'll also add, now I'll also mm -hmm. add that um, while Sanders certainly had a number of missteps, not just historically, but also um, by putting people in positions of power, putting particularly black people in positions of power that frankly had no business being in positions of power, right. um, had had any level of influence. Um, uh, some, some of the staffing decisions that were made um, seemed like they were tokenized decisions, not necessarily because they had any previous experience um, doing that level of work for a national campaign. Um, just because they were black and progressive, they were hired, and that's not enough. Uh, so for me, uh, as someone who's involved not just in electoral work, but also in movement work, also in policy work as well, I understand, as, as I know Vilissa does as well, that there are intersections there, right? right? I understand that movement folks can go into electoral work. I understand that policy folks can go into movement work. And I, I understand that all those things intersect. The problem is there are folks in all three of those spaces, uh, particularly black folks who don't know that those things intersect, that also don't know that those things are also generational, right? right. Because they're, because, you know, we've had in previous episodes, if you listen, we've had our hangups about organizations like the National Urban League and, you know, the NAACP um, and other civil rights based organizations, National Action Network. Um, we, we, we've had our own independent and collectively as the wheel and the dealing podcast had our own issues with, uh, those entities and their leadership. But, mm -hmm. uh, we also understand the uh, role that they played, uh, you know, in black history, right. Specifically, right. but that doesn't mean that putting or that getting the endorsement of former presidential candidate and former rainbow push creator, Jesse Jackson mm -hmm. is going to automatically mean that you get the endorsement of generational black people across the country before Super Tuesday. Um, despite the yeah. fact that Jesse Jackson is a pillar of civil rights history, when Jesse Jackson endorsed Hillary Clinton in 2016, the same people who were, at least online, that were angry about that endorsement in 2016 because, of, um, because both uh, Senator Sanders and Jesse Jackson, quote, walked with MLK as if that's some sort of check mark in order to get black votes. It's not. Um, just like it's not a black check mark to walk across the Edmund Pettus Bridge during the anniversary or um, celebrate Juneteenth a particular certain way or, uh, re or misquote Martin Luther King whenever you feel like it, but particularly on his birthday. Those aren't check marks that you have to check in order to get black voters but i think the issue at the end i think the larger issue here when it you know when it comes to black voter outreach is 
don't wait until after Super Tuesday when there is already um, calls for your candidate to drop out to, to then elevate one of your main voices um, in Philip Agnew, uh, who was a excellent, uh, uh, who was excellent in his position, um, to now elevate him to uh, be in a position of power and a position of influence to, uh, as it relates to black voter outreach. You don't wait to d- activate him as your advisor after several months of not gaining any ground with black voters, um, because he can't all of a sudden do miracle work and turn around um, and kind of make amends at this point. It's very difficult and it's a significant uphill battle. Um, now to Joe Biden's discredit, um, this is not <laughs> by any means, um, you know, protecting um, Joe Biden at all because Joe yeah. certainly has significant has things. Skeletons too, <laughs> you know, yeah. in his political closet um, that has impacted black folks and uh, our community, you know, but I think, with the sand, I think it was just the fact that I'm just was so appalled at the demanding that black people support you when you have not done anything or at least nothing of significance to get that uh, that support. You know, black people basically did a Janet Jackson, what have you done for me lately? <laughs> you know, to Bernie <laughs> Sanders, and right. we have a right to. You know, and right. I really want once this is over for Bernie Sanders and the campaign to really assess, do a little soul searching as to how can we not keep repeating this disastrous habit that yield us none of the results that we want, which is the nomination, which is failing to engage with an incredibly important voting block. And how you allow someone like Joe Biden, which really before South Carolina primary, nobody was paying attention to at all. Right, right. <laughs> you know, and for Joe to come back, you know, and sweeping up everything, it really shows how, you know, that familiarity, the fear that people have about who can beat Trump, how all of those things means more than you being the quote unquote person to lead a revolution, which is absurd to me that anyone would think that an old white man in his 70s could lead any type of revolution. That's just absurd on its own. <laughs> but well, two of them, because there's two of them that are in their 70s doing, doing that. At, right, at, right. Like, but at least the one that is, you know, propelled himself as, you know, being the one who could do that, or at least have his followers uh, state as such, you know, right. could do that. Um, and, you know, we have two old white men who like to yell at each other and point at each other. And it's like, OK, you know, but I will say this, being on the ground and, you know, that weekend with Black Women for people, you know, we engage with a lot of us as Black folks. People want somebody whom they believe can beat Trump. That's everybody's, that's majority of people's mentality. Who right. can beat Trump? And I don't think that progressive spaces really took into, into account how not just Black voters, but America in general, really are tired and scared of what another four years of Trump could look like and could mean for our very livelihoods. I know that even with Elizabeth Warren, I loved working with her candidate, uh, campaign and knowing her style and very proud of the intersectional and inclusive work that her plans did. But I think that at this point in time with uh, Warren as well as Sanders, people are not ready for change. They just want to change in the office. 
And I don't think that progressive spaces took that into deep consideration as to how maybe you can marry those two needs together. Right. Um, and I think that's was some of the downfall of Elizabeth Warren, un, you know, unintentionally, but also with Sanders as well, particularly if we're going, to, going back to black voters who don't really, they know of him because of his first run, but they don't know of him in the same manner and regard as they do for Joe Biden. You know, so I really want progressives to take a step back and assess going forward, not just with this cycle, but also thinking of 2024, which is a long ways from now <laughs> with everything's going on. But how can we better sell not only our ideals um, to those voters that we did not get this time around, but how can we better address the realities of this country and not do those two things separately, but together? Because right. if we continue to do them separately, we're not going to get those progressive voices like Elizabeth Warren and others in office. People are not, it's not like they're not ready for it. They're just not their centered focus. And if we want people to get centered on that, we have to be really engaged in our communities. We have to not ostracize people as we have been after the South Carolina primary and even after Super Tuesday with other Southern states you know, voting. We cannot ostracize people and have them feeling like they're not intelligent. That is not building community. That is not getting people on your side. It's really shooting yourself in the foot every time you do that. So progressives really need to re-strategize and restructure and maybe continue to do some soul searching as to what went wrong, be accountable for what went wrong, and then think about your engagement in these communities and continue those efforts when we are, after, after this pandemic is over, as we are able to get back into our communities and really start to have these honest conversations with our older voters, particularly older black voters, who lean towards what they feel can be done versus what hasn't been done yet and feel very pie in the sky when it comes to thinking on ideologies and being more progressive. Because I don't think people are afraid of progress. People just want to really get a certain outcome to occur. And that outcome is getting Donald Trump out of the White House. And not only that for me, and I'm sure not, not for you as well, but it's also a matter of maybe re, re, reshuffling the deck in the other houses of government. Um, it can't, it, there, there, yes, there is a singular focus on changing who is, who occupies the white house. But if we're also not looking at who occupies the seats of Congress, who occupies the seats right. of state legislators, who, who occupies governor's mansions, um, who occupies uh, mayor's offices, who occupies city councils. If we're not constantly looking at, because the city council and mayor races, and particularly a majority of major cities across the country, those elections are next year. Right. Across the country. St. Louis, Baltimore, D.C., so on and so forth. Those are major cities, right? And um, at Atlanta, Miami, Orlando, uh, so you know, there, 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 there has got to be a significant effort. Not just, yes, it's important to focus on um, uh, who is in the White House, but also uh, down ballot, as it were, as well. So, right. um, thinking about who is occupying the uh, White House and how they've kind of, uh, and we've kind of touched on it a number of times during the course of the podcast up until this point. But I wanted to spend some time, as I'm sure you did by this as well, on kind of the state of affairs. Um, in the world uh, right now. Um, right now, the world is facing a, gl a global pandemic. 
um, uh, codenamed uh, COVID-19 um, yeah. or coronavirus or uh, that Rona. <laughs> um, yes. uh, and it has many aliases. <laughs> and uh, um, hopefully uh, the Rona hasn't gotten your grandma um, or your grandpappy um, um, or any elders in your family or anyone in your family. I know someone I know uh, in North Carolina just suffered a loss from their cousin recently. Um, suddenly uh, he, uh, he passed um, from uh, a, a positive test um, and, and, and passed soon after. So this virus um, is predominantly an upper, resp- an, an upper respiratory virus that can be passed um, predominantly by sweat. So when uh, the virus hit uh, um, American shores relatively quickly from folks traveling back from China, but also Italy. Um, there was a significant spike in folks, uh, particularly in the sporting world, catching it or getting positive IDs. Um, and, it, and it's because athletes sweat on each other. Um, and a lot of folks, a lot of folks don't wash their hands. Um, we already know that there's a significant percentage of people. I'm not going to say what kind of people, but we are, but if you listen to this podcast, you sure already know there's a significant number of people who don't wash anyway, but there's a significant number more who don't wash their hands. Now I was always raised, my mama raised me to always wash my hands. She said, come in when the light was on outside. She told my brother not to come in outside when the light, when, you know what, you know, when the light came on. But then also she said, make sure you wash my, wash your hands. Cause you smell like outside. Exactly. And I just want to say, when it comes to the whole concept of washing, people tell on themselves about their unhygienic habits. And I went to the store last weekend to pick up on things. And of course, all the disinfectant and the hand sanitizer was gone. But the soap aisle and body wash were plentiful. Um, I don't know what y'all plan to do with the hand sanitizer and disinfectant wipes, but you may want to get some soap as well so that you can practice cleanliness to the full extent. Hand sanitizer has a place for people who may not be able to wash their hands at a certain moment. But, you know, if you're able to do soap and water on the regular and a little bit extra now, please do so. Please just stop being nasty. Like, and I know on Twitter, Twitter is not the place for having nuanced conversations and Sometimes when you have these hygienic conversations, it can vary. I'm not supposed to have nuanced conversations, but go on. <laughs> yes, exactly. You know, those kind of conversations can vary off into either classes, ableist, um, and so forth territory. However, these are the times to where if you are not a very quote unquote clean person, that is, and that is not due to a disability or um, access issues such as um, housing and so forth or uh, having clean water or anything like that, you need to do what you can to be clean for everybody around you. Uh, it's just really upsetting that people are having to do videos about how to wash your hands. And like, right. you know, my grandmother raised me, you wash your hands, you wash up, you be clean, you be presentable. That, you know, until Twitter, I didn't realize that not everybody... <laughs> wasn't taught that or really put that into practice. And we, we, we got to have y'all putting that into practice right now. If we don't do it for any other time, please, for the love of all that is good and holy, wash your hands and wash your behinds. Hand sanitizer is not going to effectively 
do any of those that you really need to do. If you're not in a jam or you have to use that for that particular moment, please y'all. That's that's the PS that's the PSA for the day. Please y'all. Wash your ass. <laughs> Wash your that's ass it. and your hands. Yes. You know, and particularly if you touch your ass with your hands, please wash that. Yes. Please. Uh, please. Yeah. Particularly these, are you do that. these are adults. These are not <laughs> children or teenagers who are known to be not so clean. Us grown folks, we got to do better. We too old for this. And I mean, right now, because of this pandemic, I mean, states across the country um, have, you know, go- governments have all but closed down uh, everything but essential businesses. Um, and, and essential businesses being predominantly grocery stores and some uh, food stores as well. And, and uh, hospitals, obviously, are included in that. Um, but I think in addition to the PSA of wash your ass, particularly your, and, and your hands, um, I, you know, I'd be remiss if I didn't talk about the fact that we are in a situation where we're in, I guess, for the, the United States, we're in week two. But for someone like myself, um, who falls into that high risk category, um, I know, uh, and we know tons of folks, Violet and I, who yes. fall into that, yeah. who also fall into that high risk category as well. Um, my father has asthma, um, so he is high risk, um, mm-hmm. and you know, he was over here for for you know for an hour. Uh, or two, um, and we were keeping our social distancing. We were keeping six feet apart, but we were also washing our hands actively because that's right. how his mom raised him, and that's how my mom, his wife, raised me. So, right. so um, you know, these folks out here actively doing the worst in terms of cleanliness are going to be are, are going to make this level of social distancing that we are dealing with as a country a reality for several months. Um, hopefully, uh, this too shall pass as the saying goes, hopefully, uh, things will, we, we, we will have a level of normalcy across the country. But right now, because of because of the lack of cleanliness going on in the country, uh, because folks don't wash their ass or their hands, uh, (laughs) uh, we can't be in groups of 50 or more because there is a fear that the virus will spread. So that's why essential, that's why all but essential businesses are closed. That's why we're seeing spikes in numbers of the, of people testing positive for coronavirus uh, across the country. Um, that's why we're seeing deaths of people who are perfectly healthy. And then, and then all of a sudden they get an upper respiratory infection or they fall ill suddenly and get, and get some, and have some of the symptoms associated with the uh, COVID-19. And then all of a sudden they pass away, unfortunately. Now, right. What's happening in these numbers of positive cases, and I think this is key because there's a lot of pessimism, as, as you know, we've talked about um, on on this episode, but in previous episodes, there, there there's a lot of pessimism around um, this virus um, and 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 the reporting on it. Uh, when we are talking about the the numbers in the thousands across the country, but in particular states that are you know testing positive, one of the things that's not mentioned as much, and it's because the media has a certain spin that they want to take as it relates to um, pandemics, they want to highlight how many positive tests they are and not highlight how many and, and not contrast with the, you know, the, the, the people who've actually passed away. And it's important to highlight both of those numbers right. because they, they are significantly different. And the only way for us to, uh, uh to bend the curve, um, uh, and, and, you know, allow for, 
there to be some level of normalcy back in the country is for folks to social distance. The problem is, um, I think one of the larger problems outside of, po- of folks just practicing hygiene is that folks don't have a proper definition of what social distancing actually is. Right. Um, meaning they think social distancing means that they can't talk to their own partner in the same space if they both are perfectly healthy and are washing themselves and everything else. That's not what social distancing means. That doesn't mean that you can't engage with the part, you know, engage, have conversation, coitus, whatever it is with your partner, right? That's not what this means. That's not, this doesn't mean you can't, you know, touch your kids or anything like that. Obviously we want your kids to wash themselves. Um, um, but this, but this also affects, uh, those without homes. Um, this significantly affects the disabled community specifically. Um, uh, and there are a lot of cases where underprivileged and underserved com- and underserved and marginalized communities don't get the attention that is justifiably deserved. And I think particularly the disability community, um, we've been highlighted, um, friend, you know, a friend of the podcast, Rebecca Coakley was on MSNBC this weekend, um, for the first time, uh, but yeah. she couldn't be present in the actual office. One, because they're practicing social distancing Two, because MSNBC studio is not accessible. Um, but that notwithstanding, right, you know, um, there is a significant problem with uh, the level of or, or the or the lack of attention or lack of conversation to the disabled community as a result of being experts, lived experience experts mm-hmm. on dealing with viruses of multiple Kate of multiple kinds of viruses because we are the most susceptible to them. And right. now all of a sudden, folks who didn't want to pay us any mind didn't want to pay us period are now all of a sudden convalescing to giving us pulpits and getting, giving us attention and providing mics for us to talk to folks on how to actually deal with this. Because I'm going to be honest with you, Valissa, I've been, you know, working uh, from home, quote unquote, W, you know, as, as, or, or folks are calling W or, or, or acronyming it WFH. Um, I've been working from home for a majority of my career, right? And, and and folks are now realizing, holy crap, I have to work from home for several, you know, for one month, possibly two. How do I do that? How do I juggle it? You know, with my kids or my spouse, how do we do that with all of us here? Right. And if you have the space, there are ways you can make it work. There are a number of articles that have been written as a result of this pandemic, talking specifically about working from home with a partner, with a family, by yourself. It really comes down to making a schedule. It really comes down to um, knowing uh, when you're supposed to eat, when you're supposed to take away time from your screen. Just like, you know, for instance, if you have kids, you, you have set screen time for them. At least I hope you do. Um, and that applies to you as an adult as well. Right. You know, there's only so many Zoom meetings one can take. <laughs> um, uh, you know, and I think folks need to know that th- that you can take a break from the screen. You can you can walk away um, and it's and, and you and you can take a break. The, you know, social distancing doesn't mean that you can't get fresh air. You right. can get fresh air. You just can't be right up on somebody getting that fresh air. So all you so all you repugnant fools right now in D.C. looking at cherry blossoms at the moment. The cherry blossoms look the same every year. The Grand Canyon is not going to change. So guess what? You don't have to be there. You, you, you don't have to look at the seven wonders of the world today at this very moment because they're not going anywhere anytime soon. 
I promise you. Despite the videos, the the, the, edit, the, the the edit videos that people are sending around talking about active volcanoes in the Grand Canyon or uh, rotting trees uh, in uh, the uh, uh, the national parks, like those things are reality because of the uh, effects of humans in an environment that we are causing uh, harm to the environment. Like like that's a real legitimate thing. So because we're living in a petri, you know, because of um, global warming, global warming is also a reason that we are also having to practice social distancing as well, because so many folks thought it was okay to have fossil fuels around for such a long period of time and systematically eliminate the rainforest and systematically eliminate the polar ice cap. Um, That's the uh, that's the larger part of this. Right. That's why the virus is so easily being able to pass and go through the world as quickly as it is. Right. I do want to address a couple of things here. Uh, it's been very interesting to see uh, disabled folks uh, remark on how everybody is now able to work from home, go to school from home, and how some of us have had the experience of being chastised or condemned and being utterly refused to allow such accommodations to occur. And I want us to really understand how nobody cares about accommodations at all. The majority of people have to have them. And uh, having opportunities that allow people to work from home, to go to school from home, is an incredible access um, issue. It allows people to continue to do what they do in ways that are comfortable for them, as many of us are able to do now who are not used to being uh, working from home or going to school from home. So I hope that after this pandemic wanes, we truly assess the quote unquote need or demand that people have to be in the office to get their jobs done, particularly if you have a job that could be remote that people have to be in a classroom to get education when online programs are um, being created each um, school year. I really want us to assess how we have unintentionally uh, alienated a group of people who know what this is like to be from home, to work from home, to do school from home, and our failure to really expand our understanding of productivity in this capitalistic society and have excluded uh, people who needed such accommodations out of our own ignorance until this pandemic. So I really want us to really assess that. Another thing I want to assess is the power of educators because parents are learning that their little rugrats that they sent off to school for eight hours a day are a lot of work. (laughs) And teachers have little rugrats like yours in their classrooms, sometimes 20 to 30, every day for 180 days of the year. And I really want us to, after this pandemic, value our educators who, you know, are, you know, in the throes of this, you know, having to, some of them have to, having to uh, learn the online system themselves and provide education uh, to their students in this new way. I really want us to value the role of educators. I really want us to better support them in their needs after this pandemic. this is not just a call to parents, but to everybody. Because we see what the stress is for families, uh, regardless of income, you know, of having our kids being at home. And I 
and I hate that it took something like this for people to really understand the value of our educators and just the work that they do each day and the things that they have to endure. And I really want us to really sit with that, you know, because, you know, I have people in my family who are educators. You know, I I am friends with uh, many of the professors that I had in undergrad and grad school. And to see them having to do this shift, you know, has been something to watch. But I really want us all to really think about, again, access, you know, how the fact that we have technology to be able to do these things now online is so instrumental for us to keep some type of new normalcy in the middle of this chaos together and to not, you know, suffer and not be able to get an education or not be able to do our jobs for those of us who are able to do so remotely, uh, to just value these things. And again, this is another access issue. And to see what we can better do once this is over to support our educators, support our schools, so that, God forbid, something like this happens again, we're not scrambling to figure things out. So I really want us, when it comes to accommodations and online access, to be more open and not be so judgmental or standoffish when people have certain access needs that fit them better or being more open to, you know, just having options, giving people options as to how they learn at their own comfortability levels. Mm-hmm. But in that, um, going beyond the access ability. When it comes to social distancing, understanding that our way of life is going to be, you know, changed for the next month or two. And to have common sense, I know here in South Carolina, um, there's going to be certain grocery stores, and I'm sure across the country too, where there are certain hours where seniors can go in. If you are familiar with those hours, don't take your behind in there. Let the seniors get their shopping done that they need to, to be in there. Um, when it comes to young folks, just because you are younger does not mean you cannot get the coronavirus. Don't go to the beach or any other virus, free yeah. break. <laughs> like stay, basically everybody just stay their ass home. Stay your ass home if you're not going to the grocery store, pharmacy, handle some type of emergency. If you do not have to go out, stay your ass at the house to minimize contact you may have with people who may be asymptomatic or who may have the virus and may not be showing symptoms yet, or even you, you may be asymptomatic yourself and accidentally um, coming, you know, engage with people who may um, be auto, you know, compromised, autoimmune compromised, you know, mm-hmm. um, um, to, to, you know, just be, just be very mindful of, of the people around you. Um, <laughs> just be, just be very mindful of that, you know, and think beyond yourself. You know, social distancing does not mean that you and your friends come together and hang out. No, that's, that defeats the whole purpose of that. You can check on your friends by doing Zoom or texting or calling. But be very intentional about what you're doing for the next month going on two months so that we can, you know, get to a place where we can get some type of normalcy. And also be patient with folks as well who are in the food industry still have to work, who are in the medical field, and so on and so forth. Because I've been hearing stories about people, you know, getting, you know, attitudes and being disrespectful. And that's not helping anybody. Take a breath. Use your common sense. Engage respectfully. 
and also engage with enough space, like give me 50 feet, you know, don't be all up on the people in the store or in the line, right. like use yeah. your common sense here. You know, there's a bubble that you, you know, personal space bubble that you need to, you know, adhere to you all. It's just so frustrating to see us again. These are adults. And I emphasize that all the time. These are adults who do not care or are not very intentional about the way that they move and how the way that they move impact others. You have to start thinking beyond yourself at this point. And once we all start thinking beyond ourselves, maybe spread of the thing will start to decrease and we can get back to some type of normalcy that we are used to, hopefully by the summer, or hopefully then by the fall at the very latest. But hopefully we can start getting back there. But we really have to start exercising common sense because the things that's been reported in the news, the fact that you as either young adults or older folks have to be told to stay your ass home is ridiculous. It is ridiculous. No one, you know, is immune to this virus. It's a virus, y'all. And there are people like me and Neil Hassett that are uh, highly susceptible to this, to the way, to the point to where people will die. Yep. And I don't think that people grasp the realities of this. And it is not just about staying your ass home, washing your hands. We have to also realize that we are under a government that is incredibly incompetent in the way it is addressing this issue now and its failure to ring the alarm earlier or to respect that an alarm was wrong. So we, it is really on us, <laughs> like real talk, it is on us to use our common sense to save ourselves and those in our communities. We cannot rely on the government to do the right thing because we have seen that they have failed us because what, three weeks ago, this was called a hoax. And now we're having press conferences every day by somebody who is calling this virus by a very xenophobic, racist terminology that is not helping at all in curbing the rightful fear and concerns, the shortages of supplies, the ability to test those who need it to address, you know, the, you know, incredibly real economic impact of this. We see that we are really dependent on ourselves. So we have to get it together here first. Right. And I really want people to understand that. Like we, this is serious. This is not something to mess around with because people will die. People are dying every day. People are getting this virus every day. So it is very real that we all take it seriously and not be knuckleheads. And on that, um, I think, Melissa, I think we should just transition into some life updates. I know you had uh, some you wanted to bring up to our listeners and then we can, uh, Get ready for uh, the next episode. Yes. So in a little lightheartedness, I guess, <laughs> if you can call it that, um, I did mention being more politically active this cycle with the Warren campaign and with Black, Black Women Four, which is a incredible coalition of Black women, femmes, gender non-conforming folks, and non-binary folks um, on this electric cycle, uh, this group has endorsed Elizabeth Warren um, during the um, early part of the uh, cycle, and many of us within Black Women for campaigning for 
for her. And now we're in a transition to see um, what's next for Black Women Four and seeing how we can support uh, those running for office um, and the direction of the nomination as time goes on. So that has been probably some of the most compelling work that I have done politically to be a part of this group where I know me particularly, I felt very uh, visible and respected um, as a Black disabled woman in this group with my unique perspective from an intersectional lens. And to have the leadership of Black Women for you know, really value that and find ways to um, integrate that into the mission from me looking at the draft to being a part of the original 100 of endorsers for Elizabeth Warren. So I would urge everyone to find ways um, in this cycle. And it doesn't just have to be presidential because there are plenty of other races, you know, down the ballot um, that are critical just as the presidency. But finding ways to get involved, you know, with candidates or with campaigns or with community organizations or community issues that really drive you and really making your unique perspective and experiences known and be a part of the conversations, be a part of the outreach efforts, because we really need to see more of us, those of us with marginalized identities and experiences out, out here. And not just out here, you know, on the ground or online and campaigning, but also running for office too. So that was just something that was just incredible for me to be a part of. And also have an opportunity to go to the presidential debate uh, for South Carolina, which was an incredible experience, probably one of the coolest things that I've done <laughs> in my career so far, in meeting Jesse Jackson and meeting Roland Martin and just seeing the behind the scenes of the um, debate. Incredible experience. Um, so that's a little bit of my up life update. Um, the biggest one well, um, is me leaving my job um, around Thanksgiving and feeling incredibly free in that sense, I loved what I did. I loved the my coworkers that I worked with for over two years. But if I'm gonna be honest, I was burnt out. And, and there was reasons behind that. But when the opportunity presented itself for me to make a decision, if I stay or if I go, I chose to go. And going has been such a freeing experience because I've been able to do such incredible things like the political work I mentioned, to going to Sundance, to coming up to DC for a weekend to see my friends, just having time to really figure out what do I want to do as someone who's 34, looking at 35 in six months. And I say all this to say, if you want to make a change, don't wait. <laughs> because if that opportunity didn't present itself, I probably would still be at that job, burnt out, unhappy. And now I'm like, okay, a little scared because, you know, I haven't been unemployed, you know, since the end of 2016. But, you know, I am hopeful and excited about what's next. So if you are, are unhappy, particularly with your job, you know, now is the time, particularly since we all have a lot of time now on our hands with the pandemic. <laughs> to, really <Not> assess, <laughs> to really assess what matters to you, what type of work you want to do. You know, what does that look like? That doesn't mean you have to leave your job, but that means you can begin brainstorming, mind mapping, 
you know, thinking ahead, you know, so that a year now, two years from now, once you make a plan and get the ducks in a row that you need, that you could transition into something that's a better fit and not be so fearful of that. Um, because I thought that when I made my decision, I would be so f- afraid, but I haven't been afraid <laughs> at all. Um, so that's the major, major one for me. And also uh, making the decision to move to D.C., hopefully by the end of the year, if the if things work out with the pandemic and things slow down and everything like that. So seeking adventure and seeking newness has been the way for me um, towards the end of last year, going to 2020. Um, even though there's a lot of uncertainty, I have more hope than fear and concern. And that's what's driving me right now. So if anybody's looking for someone to write, consult, um, you know, to be a part of your efforts, that's paid opportunities and paid <laughs> well and competitively, because that is very important. I am open um, for for new things. So that is my unintentional and uh, shameless pitch. So I'll just add, as far as my life update is concerned, um, my wife and I celebrated our fifth wedding anniversary uh, this year. Um, we're very happy, very healthy. Um, we are excited about the future. Uh, no other updates on that front. But uh, we are, like I said, very, very happy, very, ha- very, very healthy, um, and looking forward to the future. Uh, in, you know, in addition, in terms of my work, uh, things have only uh, picked up, I guess. I mean, and that happens in every election cycle. Um, <clears throat> and my work doesn't necessarily stop. Uh, the, the, the life of a consultant for, for, for my work hasn't stopped uh, for, you know, 13 plus years and it's not going to stop now. So, um, you know, I'm happy with the work that we're doing. Looking forward to building out our client roster into 2020. You, you know, if you're unfamiliar with our work, if you're unfamiliar with who we worked with in the past, some of that can be highlighted on my firm's website. Um, we don't, you know, I try not to go into, because of, for NDA reasons, I obviously can't disclose who our clients are, but, um, in, in any cycle, um, or, uh, you know, for our policy work as well, but we do work predominantly for progressive causes and predominantly with progressive leaning or progressive minded candidates. Um, but I can't say more, unfortunately. That said, you know, I do hope that folks, um, are thriving despite these current conditions. Uh, I do, I do, you know, to kind of echo my listeners point, please, you know, the, 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 the PSA and probably the title of this episode is probably going to be wash your ass. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, and, you know, I, I do hope that, that, that folks are taking care of themselves. Obviously we want to lift up those that have been grossly affected by the pandemic. Um, particularly those that have lost loved ones, uh, particularly Lo- folks who are dealing with loved ones on their sickbed as a result of testing positive. Um, not just the celebrities, but particularly uh, the regular smuggler folks um, right. who, who don't have the access to the test and um, don't know until it's too late that they're testing positive. Um, this is a virus not unlike the 1918 uh, flu um, that ravaged the world. This is not, um, but not to be confused with the HIV virus, which is another confused, which is another unfortunate facet xenophobic thing that has been happening. In addition to giving this virus a xenophobic title, that is another thing that has been happening. And I do want to stamp that crap out as well. So 
Right. Yeah. Please, uh, please wash your ass. Uh, thank you for listening to another episode <laughs> of uh, Warren and Dylan. Um, you know, follow us on Twitter. Hit us up on email. Um, and our, uh, in fact, uh, uh, our, our email address isn't changing. So if you hit us up on email, we may not immediately reply. But um, in the in the meantime, follow us on Twitter. Follow Wallace and I independently. Um, and yeah, we look forward to the next uh, episode. So thank you again for listening. <laughs>